I loved meeting you. I was so impressed. One may argue uh, that I'm a, I'm a uh, liberal Democrat. That might not be inaccurate. And sitting there with you and listening to you, I just was I, I just wished that our political discourse was more um, that you were more the mainstream of our political yeah, discourse. I felt level, yeah. I felt a very uh, thought it was interesting. You even talked about uh, religion uh, in a way, and I'm a I'm a fairly agnostic individual, uh, and and in a way that I found extremely interesting, in a way that I could connect to you, and the way that you saw That's and really felt about the very world. Very generous, and, very kind. But it was it well, was, it was Clinton, it was Clinton Tarantino for movies, and it was me for politics. Exactly. So let's just exactly. see that, Jordan. I owe everything. See that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, owe, I owe everything to you, Governor. All right, so Jordan, you know, I think everybody in America was stunned with the developments at uh, Mar-a-Lago yesterday. Um, you know, I, I, everybody, nobody knew what to think about it. Um, what, what to conclude? I mean, what was your reaction when when you heard about it? Well, I mean, I've I've heard some uh, conservatives say that liberals are out here celebrating this FBI raid, which I find a little offensive. I popped one bottle of champagne and a couple caviar bumps, and that's it. Uh, because you have to mark the illusion or at least the uh, potential promise of accountability with with something. But that was it. Other than that, it felt like a pretty regular, regular night for me. Uh, how about you? Well, I mean... You know, I kind of look at these things as they would affect anybody. And 30 or 40 FBI agents going in. I don't know if you have you ever been, have you ever heard of that's kind of a raid <laughs> happening on other people? I've, I'm aware of it. Uh, it happened at other times. And, uh, you know, you've got to have one hell of a justification to go into somebody's home. And what I what I find interesting is and I've had a number of my friends, my liberal friends. I don't kind of think my friends are liberal, but they're, 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 they'll say I'm more liberal, and they're very concerned about this, mm-hmm. about what, what's behind it. And we should all be concerned about it. I don't know. We just got to see what they find. I mean, the inclination I think for all of us is try to kind of explain this or jump to a conclusion. We don't. We don't know. We don't have enough information. Uh, we, we, but what I will say is there, there, there better have some stuff there because this is serious, serious stuff. It's, it's of course it is serious. Uh, you know, my assumption is they, they know. I mean, they, it has to be signed off on uh, with, with thorough evidence to make a, a choice like this. And so I'm hoping there's evidence to do this. Although I think as, as someone who sits back and, and hears this happen, I mean, we, we've been privy to to so much evidence in many different forms that uh, the idea that Donald, there's enough evidence of Donald Trump that he is withholding information so much so that he's not going to give it up and that FBI agents have to go and take it. Yeah, I I buy it. Literally that morning I was reading a story about and seeing pictures of him flushing documents down a toilet. That the man the man is accused of eating documents he doesn't yeah. want to share with people after sitting through also January sixth hearings of just consistent rule breaking and so so I understand the the cautious element of like you have to this must be pretty serious to take that my guess is it's pretty serious because I, I feel like we've been watching the actions of a very serious well you look look as a, for quite as some a liberal time. you have to be concerned about the power of government to invade your home. 
I mean, you know, I don't know what we have here. I mean, we they say that a they say that a, a federal judge has to sign off on it. Some there's a rumor going around that it was some magistrate in Florida. I don't I don't know what the facts are, but th- this is. Uh, this is really, really serious. And as I you will know, say, I'm not a fan of this guy, but I am a fan of uh, of a protection against uh, search and seizure that that is not that is not really legitimate. I, I just don't know what to say about it, but I'm concerned about it, and uh, I think there's a lot of people, regardless of philosophy, uh, are very, very concerned about this. The other thing I would tell you is, but but, no but also who, I guess, but but I, I'm I'm curious about that knee jerk. Response, because I get it. Of, of course, you don't want a government overstep in situations like this. But but we've been watching the actions of somebody who is has been breaking the law, uh, not cooperating with governmental agencies, throwing them under the buses for for five years, literally taunting well, like on, these what, types on, like, of actions. Yeah, but what what are you what are you talking about? Well, I, like, I, I just feel like I, the, the the idea that Donald Trump this is under the the premise that Donald Trump uh, has uh, has broken federal laws and will not give over information so much so that they're afraid they're going to lose that information. That, to me, is not a crazy premise whatsoever. I think it should be handled carefully, and I really hope right. that well, the Justice Department what if has. What if, it's, uh, what if it's these archives? Mm-hmm. I mean, what if it's that? I mean, you go into a former president's house because he's sitting on paper for two and a half years and you didn't get it? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm I'm just raising the issue because I don't know what's going to come from this. But I'm concerned when I see government officials doing things really aggressively. I get concerned about it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it isn't right. It doesn't mean that it won't bear out to be right. But I'm... This is this is this is exactly the concern that people have about big government and, and my rights. And so... And that's not limited to just somebody who's a conservative. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, Jordan, is no matter who they are, um, yeah, there's some bad people that you say, okay, good, but I never like to see bad things happen to people. <laughs> I mean, I just don't like to see it. Now, <laughs> some people, you know, get what they deserve, you know, and the justice system meets it out, but I, I don't, <laughs> I, there's nobody. There's not a Republican. I know Liz Cheney. There's not been a Republican. I've been I've been against this guy for five years. Okay, I don't hate this guy. I just don't agree with him. I don't like what he's done uh, to dividing our country. But I don't ever root for anybody to to have bad things happen to him. I, 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 but, I, but what is it? accountability is not a bad thing happening. It's, no, no, it's no, justice. no. Why, just, why, why, never, have a, why have a justice department if like, I don't, Donald Trump, you know what he was doing? He was like hanging out uh, in New York City uh, uh, trying to push lies to all of uh, his underlings at the exact same time that a Justice Department went inside his house and took something that belonged to them. To, to me, I, I, you're, you're an empathetic man, Governor Kasich, but you don't need to feel bad for Donald well, Trump on this What one. I will tell you is they better hope that they have something there. They just better hope they've got something there because it's this is going to make things much worse and much more. Div- I'm not even sure it'll divide us as much as one might think, because I think that people who are civil libertarians uh, who fight, you know, to have peoples who, you know, have been in, in prop- who have been uh, imprisoned 
for things that they never done. They go and they fight to get them released at the Innocence Project or whatever. All these people are very worried about the power of institutions against normal folks. And I know you look, but this is this is just that principle. That's but all I, I'm saying. I, 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 this situation, I don't see a normal folk, and I see criminal okay, activity across the board. Here's, here's right. let, let me let me actually. I, I had an interesting experience this this weekend. I went to a Trump rally in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and I was shocked by it. I'm, I've been to so many of these, and the purpose of this one for The Daily Show was to look at these primaries. Trump's, uh, he's endorsing these MAGA candidates, and I wanted to talk to people on the ground, like, what is the Republican Party looking like from a MAGA perspective? And so we went there with an assumption that we would talk about some of the issues. We talked about how they felt about uh, Roe v. Wade, what they cared about, and what have you. And I will tell you, this thing spiraled into conspiracy town uh, immediately. Uh, almost every single person I talked to, we're not just talking about not believing the election, Dominion voting machines, that was there. JFK Jr., most people were talking about JFK Jr. as alive, multiple people talking about him being vice president. We had a woman who introduced the idea of gematria to me, and she travels around the nation in a group called Negative 48, which believes that John F. Kennedy is coming back uh, uh, and is go actually was at D-Day to meet Donald Trump. These these are bonkers accusations. And, and I've seen this at rallies before. Like, obviously, we go, we talk to people, and it would be a fringe subset of the people we would talk to would reach for these wild ideas. The idea that Donald Trump is in charge yeah. of the military right now. Right. This is so commonplace that it's not as if we're looking to find this. This was almost the entirety of the people that we talked to. I I fear people's brains are melting. They're being they're being codified in this way that I that was at once fringe, and now I'm talking to what appear to be normal grandmas in Waukesha, Wisconsin, who are telling me that John F. Kennedy Jr. is alive and he's going to be the vice president of the United States. And I, I look at them and and it, it makes me fear for this country, this idea that like these at one point might have been the moderates and now they're trafficking in conspiracy theories because what else is there to do? Wow. Wow. I don't know what to even... <laughs> it's scary. I, I, you I mean, know, I, they're... I, and they get, you know, it's almost like in, with some of these folks, it's cult-like, you know, and, and there was a interesting thing, a story I read, sad thing I, I read about a guy who was working his way out of the cult, whatever cult you're in, and how hard it is, you know, how the families are in so much pain because somebody that they love and care for has found themselves into a cult, and how hard it is to get out of it, and once you get out of it, how hard it is to stay out of it. And, you know, it's interesting because it can become an addiction, and as you know, we have a guest uh, that's coming on today that's going to talk about the power of addiction and has tried to do something in his work um, in the entertainment industry to um, to talk about this issue. And maybe to some degree they're they're connected. You know, mm -hmm. the addiction to opiates, the addiction to a cult. Maybe that's something he might have an opinion on. But why don't we? Why don't you? Why don't we get to him? You yes, well, tell us who he is. Governor, I'm very jealous of this person. This person is acclaimed in, in so many different areas. Prolific, award-winning film and television actor, writer, director, producer. He wrote and produced films like The Hunger Games, The Butler, Game Change, Recount, and co-created the longtime hit series Empire. And he's now the creator of the Emmy-nominated series Dope Sick, starring Michael Keaton, Rosario Dawson, and Peter Sarsgaard. The first season is now streaming on Hulu. We're pleased to welcome Danny Strong. Hey, Danny. Hello. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for, for, for coming on. Are you listening to this? You, you are an actor, writer, director, producer. 
is your writer brain working as you're hearing these stories, trying to find one, a clean narrative to tell this story, and two, empathetic characters that maybe we can we can understand and empathize with? <laughs> you know, it's so um, it feels like there's so much insanity uh, all over the place, nonstop, that it's hard to sometimes take it all in and make sense of it. Uh, you know, you just talking about this conspiracy theories, right? Uh, JFK Jr. is vice president. And um, it, it's you just for me, I ask myself, well, is that is is that just super fringe? Uh, is that just the people that are showing up or a, even a small sect of the people showing up at the at the rallies that you're you're covering? Or or is that truly uh, the mainstream thought of, uh, of of an entire political party? I, I, I just don't know the answer to that. I know that it's it's much more interesting uh, to cover the people that say uh, JFK Jr. Is, is still alive, right? Because it's crazy, mm -hmm. uh, and and we know it's not true. But at the end of the day, you know, you just you, you you for me and what I do in my own work is I try to I try to find uh, sort of the essential truth of a situation, like what's what's really happening, uh, not not so much the sensationalized version of it, but but you know, and, and not the news version. At the end of the day, because I think the news does uh, is trying to sell clicks and papers and 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 is going for the most dramatic kind of stories they can, as opposed to what the essential truth is of a situation. And so for me, I'm always looking for that, for that, you know, what's really happening and, and how much of this is real versus how much of it is is trumped up to to be entertainment. Yeah. What do you think of the raid, Danny? Do you have an opinion on that? Well, I think that I thought you know, it's not, it's, it's, you want to say it's shocking, but it's not like they raided Tom Hanks's house or Mother Teresa's house. I mean, this is someone who yeah. has been investigated many times, multiple grand juries. Uh, there was a New York City um, investigation that the, that the DA didn't pursue. And then the two prosecutors that were in charge of it came out furious with the New York DA saying there should have been a prosecution that we could have found uh, the, the former president guilty of charges. So so it's not as if that I just don't see how anyone could be completely surprised by this raid when this is this is just a pattern that we've seen multiple times. And it's happening in Georgia. There's a grand jury right now. And then simultaneously, the January 6th committee, there's nonstop discussion whether he's going to be indicted or not. So so, you know, it was surprising that something actually happened uh, to people that follow uh, that that follow the travails, the legal troubles of Donald Trump. But it, but I don't see how you could be shocked um, that this was this was something that occurred only only uh, in the context of wow, it seems like someone finally pulled the trigger. Oh, on something. Interesting, interesting take. I, I you know before we move on, I, I wanted to tell you I had a chance to spend some time with JFK Jr. Actually, Jordan. Yeah, it was really something. I, they had selected me to be one of the most fascinating people in politics and when he ran George Magazine. It was after they put me, I don't know if I was on the cover or whatever, but the thing went under right after they, they named me. So, <laughs> but, but the thing that was interesting is I went in there with a friend of mine who almost passed out when he met JFK Jr., um, you know, really handsome man, but, you know, charismatic, the whole thing. And, you know, JFK says, John says, you know, would you guys like some water, some coffee or whatever? I go in, I do the interview, we come out, 
And he goes down the elevator. He says, here, let me help you out to the street. And we go down the elevator. I'll never forget when the elevator door opened, there were all these people in the lobby and you could hear this collective gasp, like, oh, you know, they couldn't believe they saw him. And we, he walked us to the car and I said to him, man, is this, your, is this what your life is like all the time? And he said, you know, my mother told me when I was a young boy that I had to expect this and that I had to prepare myself to be nice to everyone I ever met. And, uh, and it was true. And it was, uh, he was, he was a perfect gentleman and terrific guy and uh, really, really interesting. I'm glad I had that opportunity to meet him. And Michael Keaton, by the way, Danny, my uncle George was his guidance counselor <laughs> in Pittsburgh. You know, he's a Pittsburgh boy. And I said to my uncle, Michael Keaton, because uh, he's the star of your show, Dope Sick, which is, uh-huh. you know, we want to hear a lot about. And I said, how did you like Michael Keaton, Uncle George? He said, he was nothing but a troublemaker. <laughs> he turned out to be Michael Keaton, right? So I said, Uncle George, I think you judged him the wrong way. He, he's really done pretty well for himself. But he's really a remarkable actor, right? And he's the big star of of, of Dope Sick. And, yeah, uh, a remarkable how- actor, a great guy, too. I mean, literally the most down-to-earth, normal movie star I think I've ever met. <laughs> He's just he his persona of sort of this regular guy, a great guy, someone who's really funny. That really is who 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 he is. Uh, I I'm I'm fascinated by Dopesick. I will full disclosure when I first heard about this, I heard this is a great show. It's good. I did not want to watch it. Show about the opioid crisis. I'm like this seems dark. It is dark. It's it it goes to uncomfortable places for sure. But when I, I finally started, my parents watched it. Were like, you have to watch Dope Sick. You have to watch Dope Sick. I'm like, I'm watching the news all day. I need something fun. Give me some bake-offs. Uh, it's, it's so compelling the way you're able to to weave in this story that, that one personalizes this experience for so many people, specifically in Appalachia, um, and kind of puts a face to the Sackler family. Um, I want to talk about sort of the dynamics of telling a story like that and how you go about that. But but to start with, like, why did you want to put a spotlight on the opioid crisis? Um, well, first off, huge thank you to your parents. I owe them. And They're smart. Who gets me a viewer is, uh, is, is <laughs> A-OK with me. So, so please send them my gratitude. <laughs> Um, the story was brought to me by John Goldwyn, who's really a successful producer, great guy. Uh, and the Sacklers had been uh, sort of a major news story because of a New Yorker article by Patrick Braden Keith that tied them in as sort of the masterminds of the origin of the opioid crisis. That was essentially the thesis of this story. This is the family behind how this all occurred. And he said, you know, do you want to write and direct a movie about them? And so I started to research them. There have been multiple books written uh, besides this article. And I could not believe this, the, what had happened and how much was already in the public record at this point. Because Purdue Pharma had pled guilty in 2007 uh, to felony misbranding. And there was a statement of facts of the things they had pled guilty to. And it was horrific in my mind what they had pled guilty to. And then the fact that, that Purdue was able to keep selling and ended up selling more aggressively post this guilty settlement, um, pleading guilty, was offensive, shocking. The whole story just offended my sense of justice on every single level. And then simultaneously, I was able to figure out a way into the story that I thought could overcome your perception of it, which was, uh, by the way, Hollywood's perception when I went and pitched the story to all the studios, which was that this would be too dark and unappealing. And that was to do it um, 
as an investigative thriller through the eyes of these prosecutors that brought the case through the eye of a DEA agent who was trying to actively stop Purdue in 2000, 2001, 2002. And by telling those stories, I thought, oh, you could tell the origin of the opioid crisis in a way that was dynamic, entertaining, uh, is uh, as, as, like I said, somewhat of a mystery thriller with investigations. And then simultaneously, I thought, okay, well, I, I got to tell the story of addiction and the story of the victims of this crisis uh, as well. And so, so that was my approach into it, was this multi-layer, multi-character journey. I was very much inspired by the movie Traffic uh, and the narrative structure of the movie Traffic uh, as, as a way in. And I thought, wow, you could have a really dynamic piece but also a piece that could in many ways, in my mind, be the trial that Purdue Pharma, which was micromanaged by the Sackler family, never had. Because I thought if you could show what this company did, if people can see it with their own eyes and intercut that with their victims, it could be really, really powerful, really shocking, really upsetting, and hopefully land what the hell happened for the historical record. So it was very ambitious what I was up to dramatically, thematically, and the goal of the piece. Um, and But I, I thought it could be great and just went for it. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. You know, uh, guys, um, when I was first elected uh, in 2010, these ladies uh, – well, when I was campaigning, they had talked to me. But when I was elected, right before I was sworn in, they came with pictures of their kids. Kids had played football, uh, cheerleaders, and they, uh, and they, I said these pictures. They said, "Yes, these are our children who we lost, and you promised you'd do something about this, and we want you to." And I mean, we all cried, and then we went to war. Um, and we had these things, Danny, called pill mills, where people would, it would be like going through a McDonald's to get French fries. They were lining up in cars to get these drugs from these doctors. Ultimately, Mike DeWine, who's now governor, was the attorney general, asked me to not do anything too quickly, but that he would prosecute. And we prosecuted people. And and then we imposed, we, we got to the business of how you get these opiates. And uh, we used our medical board and our pharmacy board to impose uh, restrictions, tightening the whole thing up to the point where I think we were the leader in the country as to how you get these, how long you get them, what is, how, how long can you stay on them. And we saw a significant drop in, uh, in these pills and in addictions. I can't tell you where it is today, but you... And then if, if you use them, move beyond that and you talk about the hospitals where people go get treated and then they can't release them because if they release them, they'll end up having to come back again. And they got to figure out how to get them off and how to get them rehab. And these poor hospitals in places like Kentucky, you know, they're, they're barely making it in West Virginia. Uh, it's, it is such an, an unbelievable challenge problem. And I'm really glad that you shed that you, you you shed the light on this thing in a way in which people could understand it. And maybe it will keep some people, Danny, from actually when they have a surgery, you know, when they go get their wisdom teeth out or something, they don't have to take these drugs, right? Isn't that part of what you did here is that you're trying to impact public policy? Is that part of your purpose and to become an activist? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, there was, 
I talk about this in sort of the, the legal justice element of the show, but there was also a part of the show which was to redefine sort of our nature and understanding of an opioid addiction. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why Purdue and, and so many other distributors uh, have been so successful at keeping this massive amount of pills, uh, you know, in the public, um, you know, at hospitals and, and these pill mills is because of this narrative that the, the real criminals are, quote, the addicts, that it's a, that it, they're the ones uh, that have a moral failing uh, and they're the ones that are responsible for this spike in, in, in addiction and, and abuse when, in fact, the pills were sold to them as safe. And people could get addicted in sometimes three days time. Easily within two weeks, you could become addicted. And that's what happened here, was that um, uh, the rate of people that went from painkillers to heroin went up 80%. Yeah, This isn't just some random right. incident of all of a sudden uh, heroin rates skyrocketed. No, it started because of prescription pain medication that was sold to patients and doctors and hospitals as non-addictive. Less than 1% got addicted. So it was a con. It was a shell game. And in that simple big lie um, exploded addiction rates all over the country and created what we're living through, which is now the fourth wave of the opioid crisis. But it all started in in 1996. Um, and so the fact that the victims of the crisis were blamed as the reasoning behind it uh, was another element that was deeply yeah. angering to me. That's like human trafficking. You know, where I got yeah. in the middle of that as well, Jordan, where they were actually blaming the women when when the pimps uh, were and the Johns were able to get away. We changed the laws in Ohio to go out. And you wouldn't believe some of the stupidity that came out of the mouths of some of our of at least one legislator but we ended up changing that law and when you and, and Danny when you think about the opiate addiction think the families and then the and then the the moms and the dads can get on on to heroin and the kids are left with nothing you've got kids yeah. raising kids and i had children Young young students who were in, still in high school come to see me, and they were raising their brothers and sisters. And they were like, "I asked this one girl, what you know, what do you think about your future?" She said, "I can't think about a future." I mean, it made you cry, and yet we we took action. But Danny, there was too much that went on for too long, where people and we still have a problem out here with the growth of fentanyl now. I mean, people that are dying who think they can buy some street drugs and it's laced with fentanyl, and the next thing you know, they're dead. And that might be a—I don't know how you follow up on this, but you've done your—you've done this, a big, great public service, and thank you. Uh, well, 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 thank you, Governor. Thank you for your actions that you took as governor. Uh, they were absolutely effective, and anyone that pushed the ball forward on this instead of backwards. And there were so many people in government in both parties. It in fact uh, actively worked against stemming, uh, you know, opioid uh, distribution. Uh, it's 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 a it's enraging when you look at the facts, uh, especially when you get into 2008 to 2016, when already uh, we we were in a crisis. Uh, you know, 2016, the DEA is hobbled in a bipartisan vote. It's it's really uh, it's really an upsetting, shocking story. But it goes to the very heart, I think, of the dark side of American capitalism, where moneyed interests are able to uh, get government entities that are supposed to protect people 
uh, from these 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 moneyed interests. And in fact, the moneyed interests are able to have their way and commit acts that are, in fact, harmful to, to so many people in the country. I, I want to talk about how you approach this. We're talking about real people who are uh, actually affected, but you're also blending fiction into the storytelling. And uh, a lot of the stories you choose to write are based in reality. Recount, Game Change, Dope Sick, The Butler. I think Hunger Games is a documentary from the future, if I don't recall. Um, uh, the future Buchanan administration. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay, good. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, can't, yeah. I, I want more details. I need a sequel just to know what my kid's exactly. going to grow up in. Exactly. Um, but... I'm curious in telling a story like uh, Dope Sick, like you said, you're also you're also balancing telling a story in the Hollywood market, which uh, has to be marketable, consumable. You have to fictionalize part of it so we can understand the storytelling. Uh, how much of a story do you think can be fictionalized or heightened for entertainment without diminishing the gravity of that story? And how how do you how do you balance that or approach that? Yeah, I mean, in the in the case of what I did, it wasn't difficult at all to to walk that line because the fictionalization was <laughs> creating composite characters with the goal of just getting more anecdotes, more true life anecdotes into the story. So that was that was the goal of. So I I didn't have to follow one exact person's journey. I could have a composite character and and use multiple anecdotes from so many different people. And one of the reasons why I decided to adopt that technique is through the course of my research, there were just so many common stories, so many archetypes of addiction that kept coming up. And they were sort of different archetypes of different socioeconomic status, but nonetheless, they would follow certain patterns. And I thought, okay, if I can just create these, these characters, I could, I could get more of these true life stories into it. And thus I felt like it would be a more universal mm. truth then if I was just following the journey of one exact person, you know, in the case of Michael Keaton's role, uh, he's he's there's anecdotes of him from from three different doctors. But there are hundreds, if not thousands of doctors that went on the journey he went through. But I was able to use just these these incredibly powerful true life stories from multiple people and put them into one character. And, and I thought it was a powerful way to do it. How much of this, uh, you, you were working from a book and from that the author, f forgive me. Uh, Beth Macy, lovely, Beth Macy. lovely woman. Yeah, I love her. Is, you're working with Beth Macy and from her book. As you're com compiling these anecdotes and building characters off of it, are are you doing the research on top of that? Are you out uh, uh, oh, yeah. continuing to build and pull stories? Like, how, 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 do you, how do you fill a story like that out? Yeah, Be Beth's book, which is a gorgeous book, it's really powerful, um, was, was not the only source for the show whatsoever. I mean, there were so many books written about it that covered so many different facets. And then Beth wanted to be uh, in the writer's room and wanted to be on staff in a full-time way. And I thought, wow, so we're going to have an expert on staff. Terrific. And we kept reporting all through the writing process and then all through production, which is something I haven't done before, where new information is coming to us and Justice Department documents are being leaked to us. We've got new people that want to talk on background. And I'm literally rewriting scenes sometimes a day before we're shooting. It's, it's really, so this is really something. Yeah. This is really amazing, you know? And that's, Beth was a big part of gathering all that information. I call this, uh, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, where she was Woodward and I was Bernstein's incompetent cousin, Sid, you know, <laughs> just like trying to figure this out. But it was, it was a, a pretty thrilling experience as far as that, the fact finding goes. Hey, Danny. So, you know what, it's, what's so interesting in, you know, your journey to, to, uh, you know, hanging out with Quentin Tarantino when you're like, you know, 10 to 
all of a sudden, these people are bringing all these things to you, right? I mean, this was brought to you f- for uh, for your being able to uh, to be able to write and and make this. Um, are there some other areas? And look, you, you're as, as Jordan said, you have so many different uh, things that you've been connected to. But when you look at what you did with with opioids and with dope sick, are there some other social causes that you think perhaps you could take on? You know, human trafficking is a very and you ever want to know about that, you get a hold of me because we 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 are big time in terms of being experts on that out here in our state. Um, but how do you do this? by maintaining, you know, not either right or left, but a certain neutrality where you're just reporting a story so that you can continue to be effective. I think it'd be probably pretty easy for you to kind of drop off and go to the right or to to the left. But maintaining neutrality and credibility with all the other work you're doing, when you bring this, these things that are true stories or based on truth, this could be powerful for you in the long term, couldn't it? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm definitely... Um, I, I don't view myself as neutral, I'm, but I'm trying to be fair, yeah. accurate. I'm not interested in partisan politics in what yeah. I do. I feel like partisan politics is is boring. we get plenty of that. Well, we get it all we get on crap. cable news. Yes. And, That's what and, I tell Jordan all the time. <laughs> you know? I want to talk about politics. I said, I'm sick of it, aren't you? Yeah, we, like, you know, we don't necessarily need that. I mean, no one needs me to spout off, right, what I believe politically, although I've made two highly political films, Recount and Game Change, which were, by the way, people in both parties came out, said were fair, accurate. People in both parties came out and attacked it, uh, both movies. And I was like, well, I think we're doing pretty good here. If if, if I'm pissing off people in both parties and I'm having people in both parties saying it's accurate. And that's what I'm guided by, right, Which which is A, the truth, but then also what I'm trying to say about it, what is the theme, what is the bird's eye view that turns it into, and I hope this doesn't sound pretentious, but a, a piece of art. You know, how is this story worthy of, of being turned into uh, a piece of drama, not just a retelling of facts or yeah, a sort of yeah. a simple, a simple, you know, a partisan jab at something, you know, that's, that's not what I'm into. As far as, you know, human trafficking, I, I tried to sell a project about human trafficking and I wasn't able to. Um, and I had what I thought was a powerful way into it, but that's how hard it is to get these projects made. You know, Maybe we the- should talk, Danny. Maybe we sure. should talk because there are some unbelievable stories. And I know, what do I know? I think I, I could help you to figure out an angle where you could do the same kind of stuff, where you could have you could have one character but you could have multiple <laughs> stories being told Jordan, what is this you, what is this Are i'm you, sorry this is, i thought you know i would be the one no. sucking up trying to no, trying to no, make deals here here is the, the governor's thing. got his back end already no 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 danny's philosophy is you write what is your passion you don't write something to sell my passion throughout my life and in politics is i follow my passion I'm not interested in some salesman BS. You and know? You've, been a, you've been a human trafficker for decades now. I, I'm, I'm telling you, when you hear the stories, and my wife has been very involved in helping them. I mean, these are people, Jordan, who, I mean, they're basically slaves. And, and how they get out of it. And, how, and we actually had a point where the highway patrol could actually was active in trying to make sure that when they stopped, particularly truck drivers, they searched the whole truck to see who was being transported. You wouldn't believe all the stories. And um, I think they're pretty compelling. But, you know, then again, I'm 
not a Hollywood writer, but maybe I should be. Maybe I, maybe Governor. I should be. Governor, Governor. Why not? Why not? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Give it a Dang. go. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just so pumped up listening to how he is able to use art uh, in such a positive or descriptive way that turns out being positive to change lives. It's Did, fantastic. Well, Danny, well thank I'm you, curious, Governor. Off of this, actually, I'm I'm curious. The governor, the, the idea of like, not to get into the Hollywood of it all, but I do think like functionally there is a, there is a business right here, and I think part of this narrative is who gets to tell these stories and what are the stories that are told. Human trafficking, for example, like you've you've had the uh, the ability to to sell shows and to tell shows tell stories that are in the political spectrum, which are harder shows to sell. Um, 100%. You also co-created Empire, which and and you are if you're not watching, you you are a white straight man uh, writing a show that is predominantly known uh, as an important show within African American culture. And I I'm curious as somebody who's had successes in Hollywood and moving forward in this, like how you navigate that. Or what are your stories to tell? I you know I've been in some of these pitch sessions, and oftentimes mm-hmm. what you lead with is. Why are you the one who's telling this story? Why are you telling this? Are you affected by this? Uh, uh, specifically, do you have a personal story within that? It feels like not to diminish your connections to caring about these topics, but you've had the freedom to talk about experiences that are outside your own. And I wonder how you've been able to navigate that. Well, it's, it's you know, look, it's become much more of an issue in the last few years, which is who can tell what stories. Um, <clears throat> to me, it's the sort of that question is the opposite of what, how I've lived my life and what I believe art is. I think that any artist should be able to tell any story. And that's, and, and, you know, the, the key to my own work as a storyteller has been um, one word, which is imagination, right? That's, that's it. I use my imagination. Yeah. I use my research as well. I combine them and then I tell stories I'm excited about. Um, and so I, I just, I don't think any artist should be told, what story they can or, or can't tell. I know that's not a popular opinion right now, but but I, I just fundamentally disagree with it. And um, and that's how I feel. Now, at the same time, there are, um, you know, you talk about the different stories I've been able to tell. That You should see the list of stories that were rejected <laughs> that I tried. I mean, it's literally uh, so many more pitches I've taken out, so many scripts I've written that weren't made it's not as if it was it was every one of these things has just happened. In fact, it's more the opposite. And for various reasons, these were the projects that made it through that impossible, you know, Sisyphus climb, pushing the boulder up the hill where, where the boulder actually got up the hill this one time. Um, so so it's 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 a lot of failure. It's a lot of a lot of challenges. Uh, and for for various reasons, you know, these projects ultimately did get made, and some of it is extremely calculated. Some of it is lucky. Uh, some of it is just seeing the opportunity and jamming it through. And you know, in the case of Dope Sick, um, it was I didn't care. I was just going to do this, and and until I could get it made or didn't get it made, uh, and and it ultimately it almost didn't happen. Uh, the company I wrote it for originally loved it, but decided not to make it. Uh, for their various reasons. And then someone stepped in, Dana Walden, who's now head of Disney television. And I think, you know, this one of the reasons why uh, is because she looked at the script and said, I just think it's great. And and gave it to Hulu and said, hey, you guys take a look. I think it's great. 
And then Hulu stepped up and in two days greenlit it, right? So a lot of credit is owed to Hulu um, for, for stepping up and telling a story that isn't the, the kind of story that Hollywood normally gets made. And one of the things I'm so happy about with the success of the show, there's a lot of things I'm really happy about with the success of the show. Mostly, um, I, I mean, it's sort of endless, the list, but I'm really glad that Hulu took this very expensive gamble and that it paid off for them. And that hopefully that can inspire other networks to step up and say, hey, look, you know, uh, tough subject matter can be successful. Uh, if done a, a certain way. So it's it's all of it's hard um, and difficult, but um, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just driven by what I'm passionate about, what I'm excited about, and what I think could be really good. You know, it's one thing to have a subject that is a really important subject. It's another thing to turn it into a piece that someone actually wants to sit through. Like your, your bias against dope sick, Jordan, is so common. And the only reason why you ended up overcoming it is because people said to you, no, it's great. You got to watch it. So you're like, okay, I'll watch it. You know? And if you didn't feel that way about it after one or two episodes, you would have turned it off. Right. So, so you've got to figure out a way into these pieces that where it's, where it can, it could really, people can really love it. You know, you had what, uh, what, uh, 17 million or something that watched the, the session of the end of empire, I think was some enormous number of people that watched. Now, you know, I've been caught up watching that show succession. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that there's such a similarity, right? Between. Yeah. I mean, do you I feel a little, so. you feel a little ripped off that well, they, took- you know, so there's some jokes made when succession uh, first aired to me about it. Uh, I thought I, you know, Succession's brilliant. I really love the show. So if if we inspired it in any way, uh, there's nobody on there you can like, though, you know, Danny. <laughs> well, I, I actually think you know, Succession came <laughs> from uh, from obviously from the Murdoch story, right? So so uh, this the uh, the story of children trying to take over a family empire. Uh, I certainly didn't create that with Empire, and you know, Empire was inspired by um, Henry the Second and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Uh, and his and his three sons, you know, uh, Richard Lionheart and and uh, yeah. John and James, right? And so they uh, did. I get those right? I sure no, Jeffrey, Jeffrey and John. Sorry. Uh, is so you better uh, believe he's listening. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to do an angry tweet by him. Um, but so it was. Uh, it, it was. It was. Uh, yeah, these stories are they're they're you know, and then there's King Lear, which is uh, the wine in winter is a King Lear story. So it, it's yeah. it's there there it kind of goes on and on and on. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. When you could I ask one more Jordan here about this? You know, when you're talking about these movies and stories and everything, and I was in Chicago and had happened to put on Harry Potter. I've not seen all the shows, but I'm watching that. And then, you know, Lord of the Rings, we just were talking about that the other day. How do these people create this stuff? You know, how can they create entire new worlds? I mean, have you met people like that who you look at and say, boy, I mean, it's a whole new world, right? That they, they come up with. It's amazing to me. I can't do it. That's not my, you know. Yes, I, you I, can. Come on, Governor. That's an, that's an offensive question. <laughs> a successful Danny Strong, writer of two Hunger Games movies. How do you, these people who write these stories in the fantasy world, have you, have you ever met one of those people? Do you know how they do it? You know how it's done. It's creativity, drugs, probably. Imagination. Well, you know, look at the, the Hunger Games, right? Suzanne Collins is that she's the mastermind behind those books. 
Uh, the movies are very, very close to the books. You know, I don't yeah. view that as a great artistic triumph of my own. I view it as Suzanne Collins' artistic triumph, and I tried to help, you know, help translate it with other people to the screen. So um, it's I, I, I agree with you, Governor. I think, you know, Tolkien and and uh, and J.K. Rowling and and their their talent as artists is is staggering. But but, you know, there's there's only a few of them that have the, the yeah. impact. You know, there are many you know, there's you look at young adult uh books and there are many world building uh uh stories and, and books that have come out but few of them have caught fire the way uh the three the three uh books that we've just discussed have i mean it's 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 an incredible achievement i harry potter in particular uh i think those books are they, it's sort of a, it's modern mythology uh in a way that it just affects us to our very core in such a powerful way I, I want to steal some of your uh, tricks. So I want to talk a little bit about process. Uh, I'm working on a project right now, uh, a writing project. And the difficulty I keep having in the early early pilot stages is the balance of imagination and creativity with a schedule and getting up and writing. My schedule is all over the place, uh, but I'm wondering how you approach having something that is both regimented so you can get pages out, but also something early on in a creative process that needs your brain to wander, to put things together, that has to find um, inspiration from something else, but is also sitting in front of an internet <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and Twitter and things that are pulling your brain away. How do you, how do you give yourself space to, to, to wander and discover and yet still get pages out? Do you have a, do you have a, well, a trick for that or a schedule for that? Yeah, Twitter's great because it's so warm and kind and wonderful and just so much wonderful content on there that just fills your heart with joy. Yeah. Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's a, it's a, you know, I, I try to get it. I'm like, I got to stop because I'm getting too angry. Um, I think that the key is um, consistency. And it's it's literally just showing up. And in five, six days a week, you know, I used to do seven days a week for years. And I have a very wonderful life partner who demands, she's like, you got to take Sundays off. You're driving me crazy, you know? So it's, it's, it's real. And the, the good news is, is you don't have to spend eight hours a day doing it. You know, two hours, two solid hours is enough if you're doing it consistent, consistently every day. And I don't believe in inspiration. I believe you just have to show up. And then once you show up and start working, and it takes me usually an hour to start every day. I wish I could start faster because then I'd have more of my day, right? But I'm spending an hour returning emails, surfing the internet a little bit, uh, going on the Twitter machine, getting angry. And then, and then I'm like, okay, I got to start working. Uh, but, but, I, but once you get a few hours in, and for me, it's really three to four hours of actual writing, then what happens is your brain works on it throughout the day without you even knowing it. So then when you go to the next day, you've solved some things or you've come up with some new ideas from yesterday that you've come up with subconsciously. I usually, those ideas usually come to me when I first wake up in the morning, whatever my brain has worked out through the day before. And now I've got new things, new ideas that I'm working with. But those new ideas the next day, they don't happen if you don't show up the day before. So it would build upon itself. And then all of a sudden, 10 days later, you're like, wow, I got 40 pages, <laughs> you know, what seemed impossible. Now you've got 40 pages and you're, you're really off to the races. So, so two to three solid hours of actually doing it five days a week is, is I believe what it takes to really get something done. 
And now, you know, I've been writing for 25 years now. So it's not, it's, there's no struggle showing up. But I every day there's the struggle of of you know all right stop returning emails get to work you know get to work uh, but I do because I'm there what else am I gonna do not gonna I, I'm not gonna not do it but, you know uh, there's only so many uh, hours in a day you could screw around on the internet I hope um, but but that's it that's my process and it's not really magical it's very pragmatic. It sounds like you're kind to yourself. I, it's it's interesting because I feel like it's so easy for your head to get in the way and judge. Uh, your lack of productivity with emails or any of that kind of stuff? Have you been able to train your mind to let that be your process in a way that uh, you're yeah, not? I, well, that's what it is. That, yeah. That's what it is. It's part of the process is is spending an hour returning emails every morning. So I literally, and I return all my emails every morning, right? And part of it just gets my brain going because I'm typing. <laughs> you're writing. You're, it's sort of like a little bit of a warm-up for me. Um, I will say that you can't, you said something that was pretty spot on, which is <laughs> the sort of the self-defeating, the negative, uh, element of your brain that says what you're doing is no good. I call it your inner Iago, who's there to sabotage you. And so much of my artistic life is spent trying to tame my Iago. And I've got all sorts of mind tricks I'm basically playing with myself. And one of them, which I'll share with you, is that I outline pretty extensively. And then when I write my first draft, I don't read a single word of it until I'm done. So I literally write straight through. I don't look at a word because if I start to read scenes, that could spiral me into a negative headspace, which isn't going to help me. So then all of a sudden, three to four weeks have gone by. It's been fun because I haven't read anything to put me in a down mood. Uh, and then I've got 130, 140. One time I had 170 pages. That's a problem because it's got to be close to 120. We'll figure it out later. And then I go through the process of then slowly editing it. In those first week or so of that can be pretty negative, right? But but I'm ready for it. And I've already got so many pages written that I'm just prepared to know that this could get a little negative, but I'm going to work through that. And then all of a sudden, it's as if I've done two drafts in seven weeks because of that process. Sounds like our podcast. You know, we have to work through all this. Uh, Jordan, come, what are you working on? Tell us about your project. I want to know. I what is it? I can't tell. I can't. It's oh, very top on. secret. Come on. This is where, you know, at the last time you wanted me to tell you how much I paid for a haircut. Now, now I want to know about this project you're working on and you, you just are mums the word, huh? This is, is it secret? It's, it's, I mean, it's, 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 a, I, I feel like one, it's probably not an announced thing, not to, it's not to be hyped up, but also not a thing that once you start talking about a thing before it's fully even a thing, that now you've ruined the thing and now there's weird expectations on the thing. And now I already uh, know you got want to, you're going to try to get in there and try to co-write this thing. I've seen no, how you- No, I just want to be in it. I just want to be in it. You want to be in it? You want to be a writer and now, an Danny, I think it's this Danny, easy. let me just say, I'm yes, I always want to do everything. But Danny, you know what? To some degree, doesn't this just kind of come to you? I mean, it's you can't force it. I mean, and you say it's kind of like perspiration, not so much inspiration. But doesn't this just kind of come to you? It comes, you can see it in your mind. Uh, that's kind of the way I look at people who are songwriters, people who write. You know, I've I've written five books, you know. And they come to me what I want to do. I, I, I've written four New York Times bestsellers, Jordan. I mean, I don't know if you ever, I know you read coloring books, but I'll send you Very some funny. of my books. <laughs> this is, but, but, you know, things come to you about what, and I've got like an that. idea in my head about what I want to do with the next book if I do it. 
Uh, the problem with writing books is then you have to go out and sell them and you have to deal with publishers. And I'd ra- publish, oh, what an industry, what a terrible industry. But the fact is that I, f- I feel that most things kind of come to you. You don't have to force them. They, they come. One thing leads to another, though. Well, they, things will come, but I have to sit down every day and write them down or, or yeah. nothing's coming eventually. You know, and I think that you're you're a perfect example. You've written five books. It's it's there's there's a process there, and there's someone there who, is a process who, who does it and gets it done. Uh, yeah. And I and I think that that you know we're rewarded uh, with these these thoughts and these ideas. And for you know, I'm sort of a a firm believer in sort of the Jungian collective conscious, right? That our brain is a computer chip, and there's all this information in it, and then our conscious mind gets in the way of all of these ideas. Um, uh, with our daily struggles, but when you sit down and you write every day, you start to peel that back, uh, and and that's where these ideas start to come in. I, you know, I, I didn't mean to get so uh, so uh, philosophical on you guys, but for me, Why that's not? how that's how Why I not? view it. Yeah, um, that's and, how you and do it. It's, and that's and that's what sitting down every day does. And and another thing I do uh, is I, I meditate either five or ten minutes every day before I do uh, my writing session. And days that I forget to meditate, which happens usually once or twice a week, uh, sometimes it doesn't flow quite as easy, uh, which has made me think that oh, this meditation thing—I think it actually works. So it's uh, it's it's all part of just trying to let go and get into the page. Uh, but that's just not going to happen if I'm not showing up every day and doing it. Now. If if we're telling a story with this podcast, we can't let details just go without any kind of uh, them being addressed. And the governor mentioned something early in this podcast was your ten year old relationship with Quentin Tarantino, uh, which uh, could you, could you expound on um, that 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 offhanded comment the governor said to set this up? What what what? <laughs> What, what what is that story there? Yeah, so Quentin Tarantino very famously was a video store clerk uh, at, at a place called Video Archives, and Video Archives was in my hometown, was my video store as a kid. Uh, how crazy is that? And, and not only that, but I was into adult movies as a kid, and by adult movies, Governor, I don't mean pornography. I, I, mean, I was like, into them too. Movies, oh, like, right, like rated those. R movies. I just don't want the governor to think it will, will of me as a child. So I would go to the video <laughs> store. And, uh, and sure enough, I was 10, 11, but I looked like I was seven or eight. And I had this film knowledge that Quentin Tarantino loved. And, uh, and he's the ultimate film nerd, right? So I just started going in there and I would spend half hour, hour, sometimes an hour and a half just talking to him. And I was in there so much, they called me Little Quentin. And they'd say, Little Quentin, Quentin, Little Quentin's here. And, and then he'd recommend all these crazy movies that you know most 10, 11-year-olds don't don't watch. And I have to say that no one has been happier for me in my writing career uh, than Quentin Tarantino. I mean, he just loves it and has been so supportive. And uh, and and uh, uh, he, he he likes to say, um, you know, thank God uh, I did something with my life, because if a little Quentin was successful and I wasn't, I would have blown my brains out. That is, a, that is the punchline he's used a few times. What about, you You were a fan, I guess one of your favorite uh movies or favorite shows or projects is Alfred Hitchcock, right? Yeah, I was a Tell Hitchcock fan, especially I, I love during Alfred those Hitchcock. Tarantino years. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, look, they're amazing. It's, it's sort of fascinating how Hitchcock was viewed for a great deal of his professional life as sort of, you know, a, a commercial, not, not like a hack, but he wasn't respected in an artistic sense. And then all of a sudden, I think it was Truffaut 
did, you know, wrote an article and did a series of interviews sort of redefining Hitchcock as one of the great artists of cinema. Uh, and, and all of a sudden he was redefined with uh, the respect of, of the artistry that truly was exhibited in, in his films. And, you know, some of them are, are they're just incredible. Um, you know, my personal favorite is Rear Window. I, I mean, was the whole just going to say, that's, that's the one, right? It is the, yeah, really it, the most, it's such a great, great yeah, movie. It's unbelievable. And movie after movie after movie. But, but I, you know, the Hitchcock, those were definitely movies that I was watching during my video archives, uh, Tarantino apprenticeship, for sure. As you look at, you know, as, as somebody who's clearly, you know, born and raised in this 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 film industry with a love for for cinema but also the ability to tell stories that 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 matter where as a as a fan uh what what do you look to now what gets you excited what are the stories that you're impressed with how they're being told you know it's it's there's so many different things i mean it's changes weekly <clears throat> my new my sort of favorite show over the last i don't know three or four months was uh, the lakers show winning time i just loved it i just mm -hmm. loved it i thought it was incredible incredibly well told incredibly well shot the acting was amazing and i grew up in la with all those guys as mythological heroes so to see the story behind them uh i i, I just loved i was actually disappointed they didn't get more emmy nominations uh, i felt like they deserved a lot particularly the actor that plays magic johnson i think that that performance is is just so incredible and he, to find an actor to play magic johnson and for him to be so good is he's is, from uh, my he's from my the, my small 1400 uh person college kalamazoo college well uh, he, he's he's amazing. amazing in the show so that's sort of my recent uh my recent favorite is that and you know right you know i love documentary i really love true stories uh as an audience member which is why i think i write so many of them and 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 uh but i write fiction too i just get more true stories made than I do fiction. You know, uh, how about a great side note of, of some fiction work getting made. Yeah. It's what's amazing to me about, about what's happened with streaming is it's just unleashed an avenue for creative people to do remarkable things. Uh, it's it just, agree. it's just so it's such a great, great thing. And uh, hopefully it's going to get better and better and better. Yeah, it's it's you know, and unfortunately I have to go because I have a meeting right now. But let me let me finish on the strike. I feel bad because this is this is great. Can I come back? I didn't uh, throw you out of my house when you were at my home, Danny. That's right. I mean, we what if I would have said, that. you know, I got to go now. Get out. I I came. I, I can I tell real quickly. So I yeah. met Governor Kasich. I went to the governor's mansion with Joe Klein, the journalist, when he was uh, traveling all through uh, Ohio, and he he would have different people join him for a few days of the trip. And so I, the, on the two days I joined was one of the days was his interview with Governor Kasich. And, and I was I, I loved meeting you. I was so impressed. One may argue uh, that I'm a I'm a uh, liberal Democrat that might not be inaccurate. And sitting there with you and listening to you, I just was I, I just wished that our political discourse was more um, that you were more of the mainstream of our political yeah, discourse. Higher I, felt, level, yeah. I, I felt a very, uh, thought it was interesting. You even talked about uh, religion uh, in a way, and I'm a, I'm a fairly agnostic individual. 
uh, and, and in a way that I found extremely interesting in a way that I could connect to you and the way that you saw That's and felt really about the very world. Very generous, and, very kind. But it was, it well, was, it was Clinton it was Tar- Tarantino for movies and it was me for politics. Exactly. So let's just exactly. see that, Jordan. I owe everything. See that? <laughs> I, I, owe, I owe everything to you, Governor. <laughs> You're such, I'll tell you, I, Danny, you are such a likable and positive and good man. I'm so, oh, thank you so glad much. that you could uh, be with us and, and hopefully our paths will cross again. It's uh, you're 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 great. Uh, well, thank you. And, and uh, uh, it was great being here with you guys. When I heard about this podcast, I'm like, oh, I got to do that. That's fantastic. <laughs> both, both your work is just terrific. And together, it's a it's a pretty great combo. So so keep it up. And and uh, hopefully, like you said, our paths will cross again. And, and uh, I need to hear uh, uh, some of these these stories you were talking about, Governor. So uh, oh, get ready. You're going to get some you're going to get some uh, <laughs> some pages from the governor in the next couple of days. So absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Well, Danny, Um, thank you. Thanks so much. This is the best. Watch the Emmy-nominated Hulu original series, Dope Sick. It's fantastic. It's now streaming. Followed uh, the advice of Jordan's parents, and please watch the show. Mark and Betsy, don't lead anybody astray. Hey, everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, Click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Associate producer, Lee Albanese. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Sound editing by Abigail Sullivan. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Lindsay Whistler, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by ACAST.